Good morning, welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin a new series, walking chapter by chapter through the Old Testament book of Esther. We will see that this book has more hidden in it than what appears on the surface. Specifically, when it comes to God being distant or absent, we will find that he has been working behind the scenes the whole while. Thanks for joining us as we look today at the dysfunctional foundations found in the book of Esther. It was a couple uh, years ago, uh, my truck needed new tires. And I had recently taken uh, my family up to Mackinac City where we saw this uh, similar vehicle to mine, but it had these awesome oversized monster truck tires on it. I was so impressed, I took a picture of it even. I, I went over and I was, I was reading, now what are, because I knew I needed new tires, so what are the specs on this tire? And I was talking with, um, uh, actually, uh, it, it was uh, Ken Dab about uh, the, the tires I wanted to put on it. And he, he works at a tire place, and I was telling him, they're, they're awesome, these big ones. And he, he said, have you thought about what that's going to do to your truck? You, you put those big tires on and, and it's going to be rubbing up against the wheel wells. He said it's going to affect your fuel mileage. It's going to uh, have an effect on the stabilizer control and the, and the sway bar on, on the pickup. Uh, it's going to potentially mess up the shocks or the anti-lock brakes. Uh, you're going to have uneven wear on the tires. I said, yeah, but it'll look cool. See, see I, could, I could have taken what the manufacturer, what the engineers said, this is what's designed for it, and I could have replaced it with what I thought looked cool, but I actually would then be left with a truck that might end up malfunctioning or having some form of dysfunction or even non-function, only to look cool. <laughs> Do you know this is a similar danger that all of us face in life? Uh, God has designed you in a specific way to live not after your glory, not, not a vain glory that elevates mankind, but after a glory that elevates who our God is. And so we have this choice in our, in our world and in our life. Will we serve and live after the kingdom of men or the kingdom of God? This morning, we're going to start a new series, the book of Esther. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. And as you do, I'm going to, I'm going to talk through just a, a few preliminaries as we begin our dive into it. We're going to be in chapter one for this morning. I want to start by recognizing, firstly, um, that this book is in our Bibles for a specific reason. It is perhaps the most disputed book, however, uh, throughout church history and God's people, because very peculiarly, this book does not contain the name of God anywhere in it. There's actually one other book that also omits God's name. A little bonus credit for anyone who can tell me what that is after a service. But this one doesn't have God's name in it anywhere. I want you to know, however, that if Esther did not happen, you would not be here. If we did not have the book of Esther through which we'll find in our study through it, uh, and had Esther not stood up to risk her own life before the king, that the threat having been devised by Haman would have destroyed not just the Jews who lived in Susa in Persia, it was extent to all the Jews. And if there were no Jews, 
you know who would it, we wouldn't have had been born? And if there was no Jesus, where would you be today? So I want to make sure, as we start through this, this is not some obscure, random book in the Old Testament. This is a kind of linchpin story to which if it was missing, you and I would have our entire hope, the forgiveness of sins completely unraveled. And so I want to make sure we understand the the weight of this story as we look into it. Uh, Secondly, I want to introduce to you the characters. There's basically four characters. In fact, there was a movie that came out a while back, maybe a few of them. The one I'm familiar with is called One Night with the King. Has anyone ever seen that show, One Night with the King? Uh, It's actually fairly good. They, they, to my uh, understanding, get so many of the elements correct in it. But just four characters as we are going to look into it. Esther, uh, which is her Persian name, meaning uh, star. Uh, and her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which uh, means myrtle tree. Uh, a myrtle tree was a kind that looks very beautiful on the outside, but of whose um, fruit could be poisonous. And so see- seemingly uh, a foretelling, Hadassah as Esther here was going to look beautiful, but prove deadly to her enemies. Mordecai, her cousin, who plays a central role in the unfolding of God's plan in this story. Uh, King Xerxes, which is the Greek name. Your Bible may have a Hebrew name, Ahasuerus. Um, he is the son of uh, Darius I. Uh, we'll talk only briefly about the historical setting there, uh, along with his wife Vashti, who the two of them will be the main characters for this morning. And one final character, uh, Haman the Agagite, uh, along with his wife Zeresh, as we will see in future chapters, the role that they had to play. So just four main characters, Esther, Mordecai, Xerxes, and lastly, Haman. There are many themes throughout this book. I wrote down a couple here. There's a pride, there a theme of role reversals throughout the story. It's a story of God's providence, despite his hiddenness. As we've already mentioned, uh, God's name does not show up in here. Does that mean God's not in here? Of course not. Neither is the, the word worship or prayer or even heaven or hell. It's interesting, too, because there's a Hebrew verb that's very closely uh, sounding to the name Esther, which means hidden. And so God may be hidden, but as we'll see as we look through this story, uh, God is not rolling dice with your fate. That's going to be another key theme in the book of Esther, the idea of uh, casting lots or rolling dice to see what happens. And so there are no coincidences. It's also central to the understanding of the Jewish feast of Purim. Um, Lastly, uh, there are drawn out consequences of disobedience that we will see shown throughout this book, as well as the critical role of deciding to walk with God by faith. Lots of themes, even more than just the ones I've mentioned. Um, I have entitled this uh, first uh, installment, Dysfunctional Foundations. And so what we're going to do as we look through it is we're going to see the dysfunctions that show up. And just before we do, I want to highlight to you what I think are three major themes. These are ones that we will return to again and again. The first is this. The challenges and consequences of living in secularism as a follower of God. How about your world? The world that you live in today. 
Do you see secularism showing up around you? Well, if you do, I would encourage you to pay close attention as we look through the book of Esther, because that is a major theme. How do the people of God live, or in many ways, how are they making mistakes even while living in a culture of secularism? Secondly, uh, this is a, a book about God's faithfulness. Uh, we're going to touch on that a little bit more as we cover the first primary dysfunction within chapter one. I simply want to highlight to you now, this is a central, critical, major theme. God is faithful, as we sang this morning already. Great is thy faithfulness. He is faithful primarily to his word. Whatever God has said will come to pass. And therefore, he is faithful to his people. But he is not faithful to his people because of anything inherent within them. He is faithful to his people because he is faithful to himself. And I want you to know that's probably the best news that you could hear this morning. Because if it was instead some form of God's kindness extended to you because of you, well, what do you do for the person who doesn't experience God's kindness? It must mean that they are undeservedly and you are far superior. I want you to know this morning, thank God that is not the case. His faithfulness to you does not depend on you. It depends on him, which is good news for any sinners. Any sinners in church today? All right, our final uh, major theme is going to have to do with the theme of faith. Uh, I'd like to also reframe it under the heading of trust. And so this will come down for a major trajectory of the story of the book of Esther. Uh, What does our participation or lack of participation look like in the plan of God? Do you know that God has a plan? He has a plan. He desires to use you. In fact, you are part of his plan. But his plan is going to require that you trust him. And that is not almost ever easy. And so one of our great themes that we're going to come back to as we study the book of Esther is where does your willingness by faith to follow God find a participation in his plan Or are you, and it could be at times in your life, perhaps even now, that you are a little bit more nervous, afraid, lacking the willingness to follow him in his plan. With those major uh, themes in mind, I'd like to uh, invite you to look with me into Esther chapter 1 as I read through it, and then we'll work through some major conclusions. Esther 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. 
The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed that all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zerthath, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, uh, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. According to the law... What must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of, the king, of King Xerxes and that of the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women so that they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is pronounced throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. And so the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom 
to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each person's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. If this sounds like an odd Mother's Day sermon, (laughs) you are listening closely. I'd like to offer to you uh, three main conclusions that come from reading this text. The first, under this theme of dysfunctional foundations, is this. When we live under the dysfunction of man's glory, it will only result in more dysfunction. It is not hard at all to see the nature of King Xerxes' plan. He has grown up in the shadow of his father, Darius I, who went to war against the Athenians and lost. And so Xerxes here, growing up where he now finally wears the crown, decides he is going to create for himself the largest army the world has ever seen. And he is going to exact revenge of which his father was unable to procure. Xerxes, in order to create this great and vast powerful army, decides to hold a banquet. You'll notice that at the banquet, you have all of the nobles and officials. You have all the princes from every province invited. And you may have also noticed that at this banquet, which lasted a full week long, I mean, that's quite a party, isn't it? Week-long party. That he is displaying all of his own regaled might, all of his own self-determined glory. He's putting himself on display. Now, I'm certain you've never had a week-long party. No, nobody here? But I'm also pretty certain that in much more subtle or devious ways, you tempted like myself would like people to think highly of who? To think highly of me, myself, and I. And so long as you live under that form of an elevation of a dysfunction, it will only result in more dysfunction. And for us in our story, that dysfunction is found... (coughs) by Queen Vashti's response. Now the banquet is given for the influence and the status of King Xerxes. He gives it for the nobles for their own personal glory and liberty, as we shall see. But one of the problems with a modern reading of this text, and that I'm going to seek to try to correct for us this morning, is that where we have grown up under our current age of equal rights between men and women, even with feminism as a championing cultural lens, we read this story about Queen Vashti thinking that she carries some kind of dignity. In fact, I have studied um, many um, online and purchased book studies for the Book of Esther in preparation for this. And do you know what I find repeated about Vashti? Quote, she is strong, independent, and unafraid. Any amens? No? She possesses, quote, again, honor and dignity. 
And this to be seen in the face of the patriarchy. Those, those men, those piggish, imp-like, drunken men asking for Queen Vashti to be brought before her, which, by the way, in rabbinical tradition, if you look back in verse 11, it said that she's supposed to be wearing her royal crown. Uh, they inferred that that means only her royal crown. And that there, this womanizing, this locker room behavior, this chauvinism causes Queen Vashti to be elevated as the paragon of nobility and virtue. I don't think that is true at all. And so I'd like us to look at some clues from this text to answer the question, what's really going on here? Because we all see the end result. We see the dysfunction of the glory of man, which led to more dysfunction. But that wasn't because Vashti has some kind of nobility about her. Four clues. The first is this. I want you to see back in verse 3, this was a military expo. It was a week-long party following 180 days of displaying the might and the power of King Xerxes. He's basically putting on a six-month conference center, like an expo, to see all the military might convincing all those who live in the provinces that if you fight with King Xerxes, you will receive the same glory as King Xerxes. You might notice as well the second clue being found in verse 8. Notice what the king does with the wine. By his command, each guest is allowed to drink his own way. The king instructed the wine stewards to serve each man whatever he wished. Look, generals, look, military leaders, you can have your own glory. Any way you decide, whatever you see here can be yours someday. The third clue is found in the connection of a very important Hebrew word. Look with me back in verse 4. It says, for 180 days, he displayed. That's the verb that's used. He's displaying all of the vast glory of his kingdom for all those military leaders to see. I want you to notice in verse 11, when he commands Queen Vashti to come out wearing her royal crown, it's done in order to what? Do you see it? To, again, display what she has. Or what he has. I call this uh, the Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey uh, trophy wife. To all the generals. You get a trophy wife. You get a trophy wife. You get a trophy wife. Look, 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 at, look at Queen Vashti. In all her beauty. By the way, Vashti, uh, a name meaning desirable. She's not put on display only for the piggish behavior, some scandalous sexism from these drunken men. That's not the case. She's part of a larger plan of manipulating all of the rulers so that Xerxes can have his war. One final clue that will help us to see that there's more going on here is that after she refuses, I want you to notice that the concern from the advisors is not that now the whole nation isn't going to listen to you. Do you notice that? That, that's, that would have been the expected result had this been a one-off kind of chauvinistic display. 
that the concern would be, if she doesn't listen to you, nobody's going to listen to you. But that wasn't the concern at all. Did you see what it was? If she doesn't listen to you, our wives aren't going to listen to us. I want you to see that the real core of what's going on here is a manipulation of the people to fight Xerxes' battle and being governed by the glory of man, the kingdom of man, and Vashti as well wants her own glory. You might have missed it, but if you look at verse 9, it says Queen Vashti also gave a what? Do you see it? She also gave a banquet. And in her banquet, of which she was going to be taken away from, it's the same words that are used. This from the Expositor's Bible Commentary records this. The narrator presents the banquet for women as parallel to the ongoing feast of the king. The sentence commences with gam, that's the word also, and the words used for the banquet are the same here as in the case for the king's banquet. At the same time, there's a contrast between the simplicity of this statement and the effusive description of the king's banquet. Vashti's separate banquet sets the stage for the ongoing separate worlds between the king and the queen. How do you think that marriage was going? It would, be, it would be wrong for us to miss the point of this book, thinking that it's a story about the virtue of Queen Vashti. In fact, if you were to read the historian Herodotus, who records the Persian Wars, speaking about Vashti using her Greek name, Amentris, Xerxes, in this concluding story to his histories, uh, falls in love with his brother's wife. Now, that's not going to go over so well for Vashti, here recorded as a mentress. This angered a mentress, the wife of Xerxes, who's, who decided to seek revenge on the wife of his brother. A mentress nagged Xerxes, who finally gave the wife of his brother into her power. And then a menstruous had, had his brother's wife mutilated. Her breasts, nose, ears, and lips were cut off and thrown to the dogs, and her tongue was torn out by the roots. Does that sound like a woman of nobility to you? In addition, when the uh, rabbis in Babylon heard of Vashti, she was presented as somebody who hated the Jews. And it wasn't her desire to retain her own sense of dignity that presented her from walking out in her skivvies before all the drunken men. Rather, what they record is that as she disrobed, she discovered she was struck with leprosy. And so she didn't want anybody to see her, but fear of being paraded out there was no problem for the text says she was as lewd as her husband Xerxes was. One other rabbinical tradition says that the angel Gabriel came down and gave her a tail. So, ladies, you probably don't want to be seen with a tail. Now, which of these is the correct story? I would simply submit to you that we may miss the point of the book of Esther if we read anachronistically, which simply means taking our own vision today, how we have grown up in the world, and reading that back into the text. Because Vashti is not the paragon of godliness and virtue, and neither is Esther. This book is not about how women are to model their lives under the oppression of evil men or the patriarchy. This book 
is about the faithfulness of God and his patience with those who have been corrupted through their own cultural expressions of self-glory, self-love, and self-preservation. I want you to know, however, there's going to be moments of emulation. There's going to be little glimpses as we look through the story of Esther of virtue, but even those virtues are going to be shrouded in a human-centered form of manipulation, just like Xerxes was doing. They're going to include false accusations. They're going to include acquaintances to power imbalances for further exploitation. And so if you live under the dysfunction of man's glory, do you know what that'll lead to? That's going to be more dysfunction. That's exactly what happened with Vashti. It started out, the king was flaunting his own glory and then objectifying his wife. And then with perceived belligerence for her own glory, he becomes paranoid for some induced manipulation so that nobody's going to think wrongly here with all of his leaders and enacts a rule for the whole nation enforced by fear. Because dysfunction leads to more dysfunction. Now here's the problem. Do you have any dysfunction in your life? Do do you live in a culture of dysfunction? Anybody here decide to put oversized tires on, on what people will say about you? I want you to see the beauty of the patience of our God. This from Romans 5. Paul writes, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Three words here. You could substitute another word. What if I read it this way? You see at just the right time when we were still dysfunctional, Christ died for the dysfunctional. While we were still dysfunctional, Christ died died for us. Be very careful, church, that you do not continue to live under the dysfunction of man's glory because it will only lead to greater dysfunction. Secondly, God is at work even in our most dysfunctional moments. This is very good news. For I want you to know that so far in the story, it is this greater dysfunction that leads to the occasion for Esther. In fact, that's one theme that you're going to see throughout this book. God is always at work behind the scenes. I want you to know that the people that we're going to read about in this story are not people who are following God's law. Mordecai shouldn't have been here. The the, the story of Esther actually follows after the time when Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And that's what they should have done. We read out of Ezekiel 39 today. God is going to call his people back. And it was under Zerubbabel where they rebuilt the temple. Mordecai should have been with them. But where did Mordecai decide to stay? In Susa. He decided to stay in Persia. And Esther, for all of the godly characteristics that we're going to see, you need to know she decided to participate in a one-night stand with the king. These are not people who are submitting to God's standards, but I have good news for you this morning. They're still God's people. And God is going to be faithful to his own word. 
God will preserve his people, not because of them, but because of his own plan and promises, namely for you and I in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm I'm hoping everybody heard me on that. And if that sounds a little bit hard to swallow, it may be because that's not how you and I are raised. You and I are raised in an egocentric world thinking it's all about us. Do you know it's not about you? This, you know, the story's not even about Esther. It's, this is all about God. And it's given to you and I so that you and I can take hope in those moments when it is so hard to think that God sees and God hears. God's name doesn't show up in this book, but is he there? Yes. Have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like, where's God? Where is he right now? When you've cried out to him, when you're looking at the circumstances of your life thinking, Why is this happening to me? And will God ever show up? I want you to hold to the fact that he is at work, even in your and my most dysfunctional moments. I want you to see this from Psalm 13. It's a pretty short psalm. This is the whole thing. David says, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I sleep in death and my enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in those moments of like, I don't know why this is my life. I didn't ask for this. I don't know why these are the circumstances that came to me. I didn't deserve this. Does God even care at all watch the end of the psalm but i trust in your unfailing love my heart rejoices in your salvation i will sing the lord's praise for he has been good to me here's a good verse from the new testament you know this one and we know that god works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose church i want you to know this is a tough one I hope that there's someone here that needs to be reminded of this this morning because maybe your life is characterized by a little bit of dysfunction right now. Do not lose heart. God is still at work. Lastly, if our relationships are not controlled by God's law, they will be controlled by our own. King Xerxes and uh, Queen Vashti um, in no way honor God. They are fully self-consumed with their own glory. And do you notice what happened when they don't follow God's law? Xerxes made up his own law. Every man, every man will rule over his own household. If you're a keen Bible student here this morning, you might hear the echo of the curse in Genesis on the woman. Do you remember what it said? Increase in childbearing and your desire will be for your husband's place. But he will rule over you. That, my friends, is not God's design. That is the curse. And the curse shows up right here. The ultimate form of dysfunction within the household. Because we've chased after the glory of man. And because instead of following God's law, we've made our own. Great danger in this. And so just two points of application as we wrap this up this morning. What, what do you and I need to do with this today? I want to I ask a question of you. Number one is this. Where does your life still look like the culture? 
Where does your life still look defined by the ways of this world or the kingdom of men or the glory of men? I wonder if anybody's brave enough to actually put an answer down there. I wrote here in my notes uh, in your, maybe your time, your money or your talents or some more devious ones that go overlooked very easily, such as your desires. The world's going to try to convince you of what you should desire or your goals. The world's going to try to convince you what your goals are or any affections that you might have. I wonder if you might be willing to try to name those today. If that, if that exists anywhere in your life, let's take a warning from the first chapter of the book of Esther today, how very dangerous it is to not have our lives line up with God's design, which is lead us to the second one. The reason why this is an important question is because God is at work even now. So you and I need to learn to define our relationships according to God's design. You need to define your relationship according to God's design. Not man's, not yours, not how our culture tells us. But what does God say? And so we're going to wrap up this morning focusing at the primary problem within chapter 1, the marriage between Xerxes and Vashti, with what God does tell husbands and wives. I'll just read through it quickly and we'll wrap up from here. Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let me just make a little point here. Should Vashti have gone out there? Do, I'm glad I'm hearing some no's on that. Because here's the problem. If you follow dysfunction, it'll lead to what? More dysfunction. Here's the point that the place that she she had herself in. Chasing after the glory of God is similar, or chasing after the glory of man is going to put you in a place similar to finding that we are either going to starve or I have to steal food. So which which of those two do we want? Or I need to murder somebody or be murdered by them. Which of those two sounds better? Do you, do you see how it just dysfunction within dysfunction leads to more dysfunction? And so in the very same way that Paul writes this command to wives to submit, you cannot see that as a singular command given within marriage without the flip side given to the husbands. So pay close attention, men. If you want to see harmony after God's design, here is your responsibility. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is that what Xerxes is doing? No. That he might sanctify her in having her cleansed by the washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything, any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves His wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and will hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, if you do it according to God's design, the whole thing works in harmony. 
complementing one for the other exactly the way God designed it to be in the garden before the curse. But if you live after the curse, you will find it's going to be very similar to trying to put oversized tires on your truck. You might think you're getting your way. You might look good before others, but you're only going to have dysfunction. Let's pray this morning.